Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show named after a city in North Dakota. Every week, we go over what happened and who's dead now, which is quite a few people this week. We also ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the music, the murders, the mob, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for Minnesota Public Radio, and I watch a fair amount of TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. This week, we talked to Fargo's costume designer, Carol Case, who tells us about how the different factions, North Dakota, Kansas City, and Laverne, are defined by their clothes. And also, she talks about the challenges of attaining a vintage look on a show with a lot of blood. Speaking of blood, so last night. What? Okay, first of all, we have to talk about how it opened with a narrator. Yeah, all of a sudden, in episode nine, we have a brand new framing device where a narrator who turns out to be none other than Martin Freeman himself. That's right. That's Lester from season one. Yes. But not doing his Minnesota accent. This is British Martin Freeman. Yes. Narrating uh, from a volume we see pulled off a shelf called The History of True Crime in the Midwest. And the conceit is that this story we're, we're watching in season two of Fargo is actually chronicled in this book. And now we get Martin Freeman's voice sort of retelling the story, a little bit of recapping what's happened so far in the season and analyzing what's going on with the characters and their motivations. Of course, he's presenting it as a true story from the perspective of this framing device. This is really interesting because Noah Hawley gave an interview to Vanity Fair back right when the season was starting. And he said, I like the idea of the history of true crime in the Midwest, which is the title that he steals for this book. Uh, And he says, we're just opening another chapter. So for him, that's how this anthology series is working, is this is one chapter in this true crime, true in quotes, history of the Midwest. Amazing. So we'll come back to that a little bit later, but uh, to get back to what's going on in the show last night. So we pick up more or less where things left off. Hansi, we saw him run out the door, stabbed, and he turns out to be arriving right back at that poor, hapless clerk store, the Mount Rushmore convenience store. Right. We were so surprised that the clerk lived through the last episode, so they made sure to kill him like two minutes into this episode. Uh, He got taken out. Hansi kind of cleans up his wounds, you know, super glue in the stab wound, that kind of thing, and heads right back out, stealing the guy's car. So meanwhile, back at the cabin, Ed and Peggy are now talking with a tri-state contingent of cops. There's Hank and Lou from Minnesota. There's Ben Schmidt still down from Fargo. And there are many South Dakota cops who turn out not to be very impressive over the course of this episode. I feel like... As we meet the cops, they go down in competence, right? We started with cream of crop, Lou and Hank. Then we met Ben Schmidt, who, as we learned, is a shit cop. Although he has a glorious moment this episode, but we'll get to that. And now we're, like, scraping the bottom with the South Dakota folk, who apparently need, like, five people to do anything. So Lou points out, okay, Hansi's on the run. He's free, is presumably summoning help from the Gerhards. We'd better get ready for an intense uh, intense showdown here in South Dakota. And so Lou says we need to get Ed and Peggy into protective custody. But no, no, Chief Cheney of the Sioux Falls Police Department does not like that idea. Well, he actually admits that they there is no such thing as protective custody at the moment in South Dakota because their 
police department has been so compromised by mob influences. They used to be owned by the Gerhards. Now they're owned by Kansas City. He's essentially saying if we lock up the Blumquists, Kansas City's going to come and kill them. Yeah, we're just we're handing them over to Milligan, essentially. So Chief Cheney's big idea is we're going to get Ed and Peggy to go through with their planned rendezvous with Mike Milligan. They were, their plan, they were planning to sell Dodd to Kansas City. We're going to put a wiretap on Ed so that he can collect incriminating evidence against Milligan. Lou doesn't think Ed is really up to this, but Chief Cheney's like, listen, buddy, you can get out of my state because this is my plan. Lou knows this isn't a good idea. He tries to talk Ed and Peggy out of it, but it's no, there's nothing he can do. So he heads back to Minnesota, but he leaves Hank behind. Hank is going to stay and try to be the voice of reason in this caravan of stupidity that is the South Dakota police contingent. So Lou is on his way out of South Dakota when he learns that Constance, poor Constance Heck, the would-be seductress of Peggy, has been found dead. So now we have confirmation that, sure enough, uh, Hansi, in fact, strangled her before leaving the Southnick Hotel. And Lou, learning this, decides to head back into South Dakota. And he's doing that against orders because he also, on his way out of town, uh, found the body of the clerk. And when he tried to report it to the South Dakota police, they just threatened him and said, like, I got to escort you across state lines. I don't care what you found. Like, they are not listening to anything at this point. But Lou goes rogue, turns around. um, And I think he's being driven by the fact that his state trooper back home who tells him about Constance's body says, you know, when is this madness going to end? Lou's like, I'm going to put a stop to it. And he actually finds the clerk's body because he stops by the convenience store to place a call home in that much-used phone booth. And he notices the bullet hole that Hansi made when shooting the clerk. But he was in the phone booth trying to call home. Very poignantly, no one answers at home because Betsy has presumably been taken to the hospital. We see her collapse out of weakness from her illness on the floor is discovered by poor young Molly. So... Betsy's down, but surprisingly at this point, I mean, we only had like one body in the first 40 minutes, which has to be a record for Fargo. But then Lou, he checks out the hotel where Constance's body was found. And when he's in the parking lot, he sees um, some familiar faces drive by. Yeah, he sees the whole Gerhardt convoy roll by because we've now seen Hansi Dent make the phone call we first learned about two episodes ago. And all we knew at that point was that Dent was calling. We didn't exactly know when in the narrative that was happening, and we didn't really know what Dent knew except that he was saying he'd found Dodd's body. Well, now we know what's going on with Dent. He knows where Dodd is. He knows Dodd is dead, but he's not telling the Gerhards that. He lies to Floyd on the phone, tells her that Dodd is alive and in the custody of Kansas City at the, what's the name of that motel? The Motor Motel. The Motor Motel, of course. So Floyd decides that men have failed repeatedly at taking out the butcher and other uh, enemies that she wants taken out. So she's going to handle this one personally. There's this brutally sad moment when Hansi's on the phone with Floyd telling her, oh, yeah, Kansas City has Dodd. They're at the motel. As he's spinning this lie to lure the Gerhards down there, Floyd is kind of has her hand on the side of uh, of the door where they've marked all the Gerhardt children's heights over the years. And you see, like, little Dodd growing up, and you see Bear and Ryan there, and you're just realizing, like, we see them as these horrible henchmen in this crime family but for her it really is her children and when she and bear are driving down towards sioux falls uh she tells bear out of nowhere you know i miss them all 
Yeah, there's some great little moments for Jean Smart in this episode because it's the, the plot is moving pretty quickly at this point. So she realizes, you know, a second or two in key scenes to sort of show her vulnerability and show how moved she is and troubled she is by all these developments. And she really just communicates it with very subtle uh, body language. So Hansi's pulling all the strings at this point. He's been scoping out the motor motel. He tracked them there and he is watching the most inept South Dakota cop undercover sting ever. I don't know. They they decide to go undercover by all putting on white T-shirts and Levi's. Yeah, they brand brand new purchased Levi's and white T-shirts, so they all look exactly the same in quote unquote undercover in this hotel. After, of course, having rolled up to the hotel in broad daylight so that yeah. Den could watch them before deciding to you know not so subtly ditch the uh, uh, patrol cars behind the hotel and wait for Mike Milligan to arrive for his rendezvous. But way before Mike Milligan gets there, the Gerhards do. So now the Gerhards are at the motor motel. Bear tells Floyd to stay in the car with Hansi, where she'll be safe. Uh, question marks on that. The South Dakota cops, of course, don't suspect anything. A couple of them are sleeping. A couple of them are playing poker in their boxers, which apparently is a, a trend in the South Dakota police It's department. what they do. Ed and Peggy are in the custody of Ben Schmidt, who uh, is sort of shoes Hank away when Hank comes to remind Ed and Peggy that they have some rights in this situation. And Peggy was still trying to weasel her way out of the situation. They're going to like sneak out when Schmidt was asleep. She's kind of flirting with Schmidt. Taking his chips. Which of course works. Yeah. But none of that matters once Bear kicks in the door of the sleeping South Dakota detectives, and just starts firing. So the Gerhards now have launched a full-on assault on the motel, thinking that they're killing Kansas City people. Actually, it's the cops in plain clothes. So it's South Dakota cops getting massacred left and right. A few Gerhards are going down, and Bear is looking for Dodd. And we're Who he thinking, thinks is still alive. He, of course, yeah, yeah, because that's what that's what Dent told him. And it's not looking like Bear has very uh, warm plans for <laughs> If you were to find Dodd. him, no. no. Yeah. <laughs> And so the massacre is going down. It's Gerhardt's first South Dakota cops. And one of them yells out, it's the cops. And when Floyd hears that, she turns around, realizing that Hansi Dent has lied to her. And he stabs her in the gut. Now, now think, it's, everything is out completely out of control, as Lou would put it. Lou has run into the parking lot, is having a firefight with Dent, who runs into the fray, having previously been holding back to guard Floyd. Now that Floyd no longer obviously needs guarding, Dent comes running in with his uh, with his rifle, shooting at Lou, shooting at everyone, apparently looking for Ed and Peggy, which the narrator, Martin Freeman, takes as an opportunity to analyze Dent's motives and sort of recaps Dent's whole history, pauses this whole shootout to trace Dent's history back and start speculating, why is this that Dent turned on the Gerhards and why does he have it in for Ed and Peggy in particular now? Is it because they saw him in this moment of vulnerability when he's asking Peggy to cut his hair? I don't Martin Freeman and I have all the same questions. We don't have a lot of answers, though, but we did finally get a backstory for Hansi Dent. He was taken off the street by Otto Gerhardt when he was eight years old. So got a little more insight there, but it doesn't help us analyze his behavior, really. He's looking for Ed and Peggy. He shoots Hank in the gut. Ah, uh, Hank, my fingers are crossed. He Love made it Hank. to episode nine, which is more than I, I was. I feared. No, so. I think he's still alive. Okay, Don't ruin it for me. Back in the parking lot, though, Bear has seen that Floyd is dead, and now he's in a shootout with Lou. And despite the fact that he's taken like five or six body shots, he manages to tackle Lou. He's in like full 
zombie grizzly bear mode, and he's choking him out in the parking lot. And meanwhile, Ed and Peggy have run out of the room because they splashed Dent in the face with this hot water that Peggy had been preparing. Ben had a great moment when he took out a couple of Gerhards, but then Peggy takes out Ben by knocking him in the head, runs out of the room, splashes this hot water on Dent's face, is running away from Dent. Dent is chasing Ed and Peggy. And then... There was a UFO! Vindication! All of these crazy signs, all of the bumper stickers in the clerk's store claiming we are not alone, look to the skies. A UFO has settled over the parking lot of the Motor Motel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And this time it is unmistakably a UFO. This one can't be written off to, oh, what was that? What were those strange lights in the sky? Was this just some kind of joke? No, all the characters at once see the UFO, react to the UFO, which is uh, much to the disadvantage of Bear, who is sort of gaping up into this light that's shining down on him from the UFO when... Lou is able to reach for his gun and shoot Bear in the head. At which point Peggy has basically, well, it was definitely my favorite line of the night. She has a fly in South Carolina. We gotta go. Hansi is hot on their trail. Uh, Lou runs up. Uh, he's trying to figure out the chaos and you hear Hank call out, Officer down! Which is like the understatement of the season. I didn't realize that was Hank himself yelling that. I was sort of wondering who had seen Hank and yelled that, and it was it's Hank himself. Uh, yeah, it's Hank. Uh, so Lou finds Hank. In my mind, I was thinking Hank knew that help was coming, and so he let Lou go to chase Peggy and Ed. Yeah, the because UFO. Because Hank's gonna live, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope so as well. Hey, Hank was looking pretty good for someone who's been gut shot in this show, so we can we can hold out hope. Meanwhile, the UFO has left, having sort of hung around for a few minutes and taken a look at the situation. They end up not intervening besides what they've already done simply by appearing, and they fly off. And at the end of the episode, we have Ed and Peggy on the run, Dent chasing Ed and Peggy, Lou chasing Dent, chasing Ed and Peggy. But we also had a strange visitor at the end of the episode, Mike Milligan pulled up way late to the party. Uh, Although really early for his appointment. <laughs> it's true. Um, he sees Floyd's body in the parking lot. Then he sees all of the other bodies. And he says quite succinctly, okay then. Gets back in his car, drives off as the sirens pull up. Cue Britt Daniel of Spoon singing CCR's Run Through the Jungle. And that's an episode, ladies and gentlemen. What to talk about? Let's uh, talk about uh, the narrator device, Martin Freeman. Where does that come from and why all of a sudden in episode nine? I have a theory on this. This was arguably like the most wild, crazy, literally out of this world episode that we've had so far. And it was the most explicitly set apart as like a tale. This was a story being recounted, which to me means, you know, these facts may be a little fuzzy. There may be aliens almost had this rhymy storybook quality to it. Yeah, and really drew attention very strongly to the fact that this is a story that, you know, we understand as viewers has been written and scripted. But, you know, you, you can forget when you get caught up in the action, you feel like you're actually like watching real people living their lives and you forget that this is all sort of under the control of Noah Hawley. Right? And this sort of reminds you that I, I felt like, you know, as someone who every week sits here and recaps the episode and tries to analyze what does this mean, who's doing this and why, I feel like Martin Freeman is coming in kind of stealing our thunder in this episode. He's doing what we would otherwise be doing, which is saying, gee, why did Hansi make this decision? Why did this happen this way? And he sort of like goes over all the facts and 
So it's sort of like drawing your attention to the fact that all these things you're thinking and wondering about the characters are things you're thinking and wondering because they're part of the story that has been created for us to do precisely what we're doing right now. Between the British accent, though, and and pulling the book off the shelf and those little illustrations of the Blomquist and everything, I mean, it almost had like a cutesy Wes Anderson vibe to the beginning, which was very strange for me. And I wonder why this came in episode nine and not in episode one. That's a good question. I I, I guess I attribute it to Noah Hawley just screwing with us because he can. I mean, why why not bring this in in episode nine? You know, it's it's surprising. It's a it's a twist, but it also coincides with the arrival of the aliens. And my thought about what's going on with the aliens in this episode, given that they they appear and the characters see them and they react to them. Well, okay, they see the ship. They see the ship. That's we did right. not see any aliens. That's true. We have not committed like the signs, faux pas, and seen the aliens, and then the show just tanks. We have only seen the ship. That's true. So the ship arrives, but then then the ship leaves, and what the moment the ship arrives is this moment really anything could happen right the characters are tussling with each other it's unclear who's going to come out on top literally it's unclear what's going to happen and to me the arrival of the aliens was just a reminder that you know there is someone coordinating this show from on high someone wrote this script someone decided what was going to happen and so it's a little arbitrary who's going to emerge victorious you know will lou live will hank live will bear live well we know lou lives we, we, we know that Lou lives, that's true, but in you know the larger scheme of things, right? It's like this is this has all been created for us by a higher power, if you will. And to me, the aliens were a reminder of that. Oh, you're taking it very meta. I was thinking that if only Lou had seen the aliens, which for a minute he was kind of the only truly conscious character seeing them, that you could attribute this as like a vision to him being losing consciousness at Bear's hands. But then Hansi checks it out. Peggy calls it a flying saucer. They're all admitting that it's happening. So we really can't chalk it up to some character's vision this time. You imagine that these characters will, in years to come, talk about this in almost a matter-of-fact way, the way that Val Johnson does now, you know? Here's what happens. There was a ball of light. Yeah, can't entirely explain it, but, you know, definitely happened. That's right. So anyone who hasn't been listening to us all season where I've been talking about these aliens, there was a real... Minnesota encounter with a UFO in 1979. Val Johnson was a sheriff's deputy and his car hit an unexplained ball of light. And Noah Hawley, in his most recent interview with Entertainment Weekly, actually referenced this Val Johnson incident. So we have confirmation that he was digging around in the same history that we've been speculating about. And you, so you can go back to episode three to learn more about what uh, what happened with uh, Val Johnson back in the 70s. But I like the way that this episode sort of set up the Midwestern reaction to aliens. Well, there they are. Let's not make a big deal about it. <laughs> My question is, why were they there? I mean, they were shining these, you know stereotypical perfect circles of light down on a couple different bodies in the parking lot. I mean, did they come to abduct some and then they saw what's happening and they were like, oh, hell no, we're out of here. Yeah, we'll pass on on yeah. this lot. We were going to take Bear, but then he blew his brains out. So we're just, we're going to go. Yeah. On to bigger and better. And we do actually see a little flash of light at the very end of the episode, which we presume to be the aliens. Yeah, they're like, we're out of here. <laughs> Heading off to California. Uh, but anyway, so Hansi, so what is going on with Hansi? We've sort of examined his motivations now, and we've had Martin Freeman help us sort of sorting out why he turned and established that we really don't necessarily know what the moment was when he decided to turn on the Gerhards. But 
why does he have it in for Ed and Peggy? Does he especially have it in for Ed and Peggy? Is Martin Freeman right? Is it because they saw him at this vulnerable moment? I mean, that implies that him asking for the haircut was his true self, was him letting his guard down. I don't know. I didn't buy it for me. I think he wants a clean sweep. He's getting rid of everything from his former life. I mean, that's why he has to get rid of all the Gerhards because he lured them down there. I mean, he's already taken care of like presumably the worst of them, which was Dodd, but he's not done yet till he gets them all. But the big question for me is when he's on the phone with Floyd. They got numbers, but they're not expecting anything. I'll be there in three hours. No, ma'am. You send Baron a dozen men. We can bring him home. Are you telling me what to do? No. Just can't vouch for your safety is all. Three times I sent men to do a job. Three times they come back unfinished. I'll handle this myself. Yes, ma'am. Well, they waste them the devil's hours. Did he not want to kill her? Did he have special plans for her later? I mean, what do you think? It does seem to suggest that he has a soft spot in his heart for some members of the Gerhardt family. Which, <laughs> there aren't many left. We were talking about this. So there's Charlie, who's in prison. And then presumably, like, these Gerhardt wives and daughters who we've not seen. But we know Dodd had three other daughters and presumably a wife. So basically, it's just Charlie and these unnamed women left. Which, when Joe Bulo promised to wipe the Gerhards off the face of the earth, little did he know that Hansi Dent, who cut Joe Bulo's head off, would be the one to carry it out. Well, so one reason that Hansi ends up getting stabbed in the back by Peggy is that he, like everybody else in this show, except Lou, no, including Lou, <laughs> seems to underestimate Ed and Peggy. I don't know how they are still alive. <laughs> that That is the great mystery of season two. They somehow continue to make it out of all these scrapes. But an interesting thing for me in this episode was we see once again how loyal Hank and Lou are to the Blumquist, even though this whole thing is basically their fault. They've spurned their help at every turn. I'm responsible for you. We don't need your conscience. You're half the reason we're in this mess. Look, you're not ready for this. Trooper, not another word. You're not up to the task. This is a war. Don't you get it? I'm responsible for you, and you're breathing because of me. I can't just leave you behind. Son! And he's just been trying so hard for so many episodes to make Ed and Peggy see reason, get to a safe place, quit trying to outthink all these, you know, mobsters they find themselves wrapped up with. But they, Ed and Peggy just keep on <laughs> spiraling upward and, and keep on somehow prevailing. But yeah, maybe there's a little Minnesota loyalty going on here. We're in the, we're in enemy, what is, seems to be the enemy territory of South Dakota, given that they're not very friendly towards Lou. So, I mean, we were thinking early on that Ed was definitely going to die. I mean, that seemed apparent early. And then I kind of thought maybe Peggy won't make it out alive. But at this point, I mean, it really looks like they both might live. At this point, you wonder why Noah Hawley at all would choose to let Ed and Peggy live or not. If there is some judgment of morality going on here, right? Maybe they'll be spared because their relative innocence and all this, or maybe Peggy won't be and Ed will be because Peggy's the, you know, the one who has all these insidious plans and Ed just wants to live a simple life. I don't know. There was a line for me in the narration that kind of hints that they will both live. Ed and Peggy Blomquist were just 29 years old on the night their lives changed forever. 
you usually don't use that phrase if someone is then going to die like in the next week per se, you know, like, oh, it was a real life changer because it was the end of their life, you know, like it kind of presumes that they go on to something else. And whether that's season three, I don't want to speculate, but that little line for me was like, okay, they're they're going to have lives beyond this. Let's talk about South Dakota. So we're now in South Dakota and South Dakota comes in for a lot of mockery this uh, episode. It's South Dakota's turn to uh, get the get the blunt end of this show's uh, humor. Yep, they get the Fargo treatment, which uh, I feel like they've amped up the accents on the South Dakota crew to set them apart. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, that the captain's name is Cheney. I don't think you accidentally name anything Cheney these days. No, and that he just happens to have this theory that we will bring the battle to the enemy where they are, but the battle ends up getting brought to him in a disastrous way. I don't know. Hmm. I think so. I have a theory about the title of the episode too. The castle. Yeah. So the castle, famous book by Franz Kafka. We're still very firmly in that existentialist early twentieth century thought that uh, all the episode titles have been uh, have been in so far. So my theory is South Dakota is the castle or the village around the castle. The book is about this guy who's sort of trying to see the leader of this little village, is trying to just live and and, and get things done. But the residents of this village keep frustrating him. They keep trying to turn him out. He keeps being told, you can't be here. You need to go through bureaucratic process or whatever. And I think you could see this as the Lou character in this episode, right? Who's just trying to do what's right, trying to do what seems like it should be relatively simple, get Ed and Peggy, keep them safe, do, you know, reasonable law enforcement type things. But he gets frustrated every turn by the authorities who preside over Sioux Falls in that corner of South Dakota. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty accurate reading of what's happening there with that episode title. Though it should be noticed that uh, Kafka died before finishing the castle, and he requested that his remaining manuscripts be burned, but his friend didn't burn them. He published them. So the castle was really never supposed to be out there for the public, which I think is an interesting little twist uh, when you bring in the Kafka history. You could also ask, are we all in the village and the aliens are in the castle? Carol Case is an award-winning costume designer who's worked on both seasons of Fargo as well as on a slew of other prestige shows like Hell on Wheels. And with this season, she's taken us back to 1979 in the Midwest with plenty of high-waisted pants and other delights from the 70s. She's here with us now from Calgary to talk about how she created the look of Fargo's wardrobe. So for this season, Carol, Noah Holly, he called you up. He said, we're going back to 1979. What do you do? How do you prepare? I'm old enough to have been an adult in 1979. So I had lots of old family photos and stuff like that, looking at that stuff. Looking back at the fashion of the 70s, which is, um, you know, pretty extreme considering what we wear now. How would you describe Midwest fashion in the late 1970s? What were some of the hallmarks? Uh, a lot of the soldiers were coming back from Vietnam. Fashion wasn't on the edge like it is now. Like we have the internet, so you can see what Beyonce is wearing t- today, and you can have it for tomorrow. Whereas it was a lot more catalogs. We're talking about small towns, so people had less expendable incomes. So people didn't um, 
have this huge connection to the fashion as much and you'd wear the same outfit for more than one or two seasons. And the big thing with us is because of where we are, it's about the weather. It's about being able to deal with um, it being freezing cold out there and still saying something about yourself. Where did you find these pieces? I mean, can you find them in a thrift store or did you have to recreate some of them? As far as the thrift stores, we didn't have much luck with thrift stores because I think, you know, it tends to be sort of 90s stuff in thrift stores now. There are vintage. We did some, um, even some online vintage shopping. and But things like um, a lot of Kirsten stuff, we did have to build. So we dug around. I found a bunch of old um, Simplicity and McCall's patterns, you know, the ones that are in your mom's basement. <laughs> and <laughs> we used those as stepping off points for ideas. So we had a lot of, uh, a lot of her things were built. And then we, um, we rented some vintage things from a Canadian uh, rental company. We did do a little bit of modifying of modern things because there was a bit of a resurgence of 70s uh, in the last couple of years. So there were some pieces that we could take and you know, just push a little bit in one way or the other and give them a little bit of a tweak. That seems daring to rent costumes on a show like Fargo, where there's so much uh, blood <laughs> and guts flying around. Well, you can be just about guarantee anybody who was in a blood scene is not wearing a rental costume. <laughs> pretty much be be um guaranteed i mean the thing the thing with the seventies is that uh that with finding that stuff is that we can't couldn't find multiples, so anything that would require a stunt or blood um all those things had to be had to be made pretty much exclusively. I was able to find a um men's clothing store that had a bunch of stale stock in the basement. So they had some 70s suits, so we were able to get some multiples that way. And um, it was a great adventure kind of trying to get, find places that might have some stock still from the 70s. So I did find a place that had some um, some winter coats and stuff, because that's a real issue for with rentals and stuff, because people just don't have coats from the 70s. And as if you've been watching Fargo, you know, there's a lot of it's outside. <laughs> In this season, just like the last season of Fargo, characters have had to dress for the snow a lot. It means parkas and boots, and you've still found a way to make the costumes pop. What kind of costume challenges does the cold weather present, besides just it being harder to find vintage winter coats than vintage blouses, I presume? We did end up with the things that we made. We used modern um, insulating fibers inside of them to keep them a bit warmer because um, a lot of the stuff just wasn't warm enough. The weather was not as cold as it had been on the previous season, which was really a challenge, but uh, at least that was closer in time. So just to make the costumes kind of pop, we took a lot of existing clothes and then add pieces. You know, perhaps we changed collars, added warmer linings, those sorts of things. So we have three major groups of characters so far this season. There's the Fargo contingent, the Laverne group, and then, of course, the Kansas City contingent. And each uh, group seems to have its own particular style. How did you establish the different styles for different groups of characters? Well, um, uh, 
all of this was in a lot of conversation with Noah. We sat down early on and talked about the vision and how we really wanted to keep those things specific. So I'm glad you're asking that you're thinking that that they are specific because we really did try to make them um, as different as we could. I think because so much of the show becomes sort of about the corporatization of America at that time. So the Kansas City people were, you know, we wanted to keep them hard. We wanted to keep them more corporate. They're all still quite individual characters, but we wanted to to tell a story about the group and then a story about the character. With the Gerhardt clan, we wanted to keep them in that kind of redneck feel, you know, they are people of the country, just to keep them feeling a bit more in the in the blue-collar working guy feel. And then the other ones, I wanted to have that feeling of a, a real small-town America, and I wanted it to be, you know, these are particularly, these are, these are people whose lives have been impacted by something completely by accident. And um, so the, you know, with Peggy, um, the idea that she, you know, looks at fashion and dreams about the world outside. And so trying to, you know, she may not be able to afford all those items, but she can sew so she can make stuff or she can adjust things so that she is a little bit more fashion forward than everyone else. I love yeah. Peggy's outfits on the show. I that was wondering about that. I mean, you put her in that red beret. She's got those bright red gloves. She's got that great coat. And at one point, she's wearing a blouse that has Paris and dancers all over it. And I was like, oh, clearly this is a woman who's dreaming of places outside Minnesota. Yeah. Then that's what we were trying to trying to get, to give her. And I mean, Kirsten's great because she's such a good... She's just willing to go there right away. Those styles can be a bit terrifying. <laughs> quite frankly. And she was great. She was a real trooper and just sold the whole look. It was great. Were there any other characters that were especially fun for you to dress? Oh, well, really, I think they all were. It was it was fun to do Floyd, which Jean's the Jean Smart character. It's something you don't get to do very often. Then your nature is, of course, to make people look the best you can. And um, in this particular case, it was the best to tell the story. What's going on with the identically dressed henchmen that we have in this season? So we have the Kitchen Brothers in identical clothes. And then also when that Kansas City Undertaker shows up, his henchmen are in identical clothes. And that always kind of gives like an eerie feel when people are matching like that. <laughs> well, good. Because <laughs> they're really pretty, all pretty creepy, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, I think... The Kitchen Brothers costumes kind of evolved where Noah and I were thinking, you know, they're like, they're kind of like a uniform. They're like the, you know, the sergeant at arms guys. So we were trying to keep them similar, but what exactly to, to do to make it seem logical. And then we hit on the, the sort of color combinations that we liked and, um, I've always loved those big, long leather trench coats from the 70s. I think they're they're great. And uh, we did, in fact, in the end, have to make all that stuff because, of course, you know, many bad things happen to them. Yeah, there's some blood involved. <laughs> yeah, and those white suits, they don't, they're not very forgiving with the blood. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then the other guys were kind of like an echo of the um, Kitchen Brothers. That was the plan there. So we had sort of a logistical question regarding how the business works with respect to costumes. Some of our followers have been noticing costumes from the show popping up on eBay, which is sort of fascinating and interesting opportunity. How is it that costumes sort of find their way out into the public after a show is finished shooting? Oh, well, um, often what will happen is um, Fargo itself keeps a stock of costumes, but specific things that we know we would never be able to use again, or they're very specific, are often um, sold to online auction houses. I've got one question, which might just be a crazy theory, but we've got Skip Springs tie early on, which has little American flags on it. Yeah. And we've got Rye Gerhardt's belt buckle, which is a big eagle on it. It's like, anyone who wears patriotic clothing bad things seem to happen to them. <laughs> well, it does seem that way. I mean, the skip spring tie was just too perfect because it's a bicentennial tie. When the tie fell in my hands, I just, it was perfect. So that was how that happened. And uh, But now that you say it, it is true that a lot of people are wearing patriotic things. But there's a lot of people die that aren't wearing patriotic things. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, um, you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, in the scenes for next time, we know Peggy and Ed, they're still on the run from Hansi, uh, but we got this, it took like two seconds. I had to, to pause my DVR and check this out, but it seems like Mike Milligan is pulling out a social security card for a man named Moses Tripoli. I don't think there are a lot of Tripolis hanging out in the Midwest. Uh, and we had a Mr. Tripoli in season one of Fargo, who was the head of the Fargo mob. So we have our our first connection back to season one and this whole um, Fargo mob contingent that's going to rise again. Although if you watch season one, you know that Lorne Malvo eventually killed them all at one time in this uh, huge office building shootout. But... Mr. Tripoli makes some kind of appearance in the next episode. I don't know. Yeah. So our coworker, Leah Garris, was asking me, so do you think Milligan's just going to take credit for all of this? It seems like very possible. So Mike Milligan has now achieved exactly what he and Joe Bulo set out to do. If they couldn't get them to make a deal, then they were supposed to wipe them out. And that's been done. Not at his hand, but it's been done. Yeah, so is he now going to be forgiven, even if he can't quite explain how it would have been that he would have brought about the slaughter of the Gerhards by South Dakota cops and vice versa? Things worked out for him. I don't know, though, because his Kansas City bosses did send the undertaker to kill him, which is, you know, kind of seems like a deal breaker for me in terms of going back to work for that employer. But uh, maybe they can settle their differences. But hey, everybody loves a winner. And Mike Milligan seems to be, if anyone is the winner in this episode, except maybe Ed and Peggy, (laughs) it's Mike Milligan. So next week, we're going to have to see what happened to Hank. Got my fingers crossed for you, Ted Danson. Uh, What happened to Betsy? Although I'm a little less optimistic on that front. I think we'll see her again, but I don't think she has long. Uh, And we're going to see if Peggy and Ed can actually make it out of this whole season alive. 
Yeah. So really, we've now had the giant massacre that was foretold, that we knew was coming in this season. It's happened. Bodies stacked to the second floor. They haven't been literally stacked yet, but they could be. <laughs> so now it's just, yeah, we're just sort of, we're in resolution mode, where we're going to find out what happened to a few of the key characters. Possibly a little bit less bloody next week. Yeah, I don't know who is left to kill. We yeah. have our, we have the body count we were promised. Will there be more? Podgies is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. We are live tweeting the remaining episode on Twitter at Awjeez Podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Well, that was a deal. Okay, then.